So welcome to another installment of the Greenhouse Environmental Humanities Book Talks. This week we are joined by Tom van Doren, who's a social professor at University of Sydney in Australia, uh, and also a professor too uh, at University of Oslo. Uh, so we're very glad to have you here with us. Uh, and we had invited you to talk about your book, The Wake of Crows, Living and Dying in Shared Worlds, that came out uh, last year. So we're looking forward to hearing more about this book. Uh, I'll just leave the floor to you. Great, thanks very much. Thank you to both of you, to Dolly and Finana, for having me uh, and for this opportunity to, to say a little bit more about uh, this book. And thanks to all of you for coming along. Um, I'll just start by acknowledging that I'm speaking to you today from the lands of the Darug and Gunungurra people in the Blue Mountains in Australia and pay my, um, pay my respect to their elders past, present and emerging. Um, so this uh, is the book. I brought the prop, um, uh, The Wake of Crows, as Finana just said. Um, uh, and it's, as the name implies, it's a, an exploration of crow life in our present time. Um, so I'm... Um, really in the book trying to think with crows about what it means to live well with others uh, in a changing world um, in the context of extinction and urbanisation, colonisation, globalisation and more. Um, so I don't, uh, I, I'm often asked and I, uh, why crows and I guess that is the obvious question to a book about crows um, but I don't have a very good answer. Um, I've got lots of little bits of answers um, and I think that they're, they're probably important um, even though I was, maybe wasn't thinking about them as consciously as I might have when I started work on the book. But the first reason is really just because they're incredible birds. Um, so I talk about uh, when I use the word corvids um, in the book and now I'm really talking about ravens, crows, rooks, jackdaws, um, all of those things of birds of the genus corvus um, who are mostly black birds. And they are all... Um, they all share, uh, in, but with their own distinctive versions, uh, a really kind of intelligent, highly social uh, lives. So they're doing all sorts of interesting things in the environment, which makes them fun to think with, but also sometimes very challenging to live with. Uh, and I wanted to explore some of the, the challenges that come from their intelligence, for example, um, challenges that managers often face. Uh, and so that involved uh, part of the research for the book was visiting corvid uh, behavioural labs uh, and looking at some of the work that was being done on corvid cooperation or um, sharing or um, tool use uh, and thinking about what is distinctive and interesting about this corvid way of life. Um, so that's one of the things that drew me to, to them, to those birds. Um, but the other one really is, is that they're just so varied. Um, and again, that, Think that sometimes surprises people um, because they to, they sort of all seem like much the same bird uh, and they're often very hard to tell apart um, but they live in really diverse ecosystems they live in from the arctic to the desert they live in uh, urban environments and rural environments and so they they inhabit all of these different places and as a result are thrown into different kinds of relationships with people and some of them are are really loved and conserved and um, looked after. Others are really despised and culled and, um, and so on. So um, that for, for me was important. It gave me an opportunity to think about diverse human um, wildlife, if you like, uh, interactions. 
Uh, and some of them, of course, are, are really rare, endangered or even critically endangered crows, uh, and others are considered to be overabundant pests uh, who are targeted for uh, eradication. Um, so the, the book moves through five key sites, um, what we might think about as case studies, but they're very different um, sites of human-crow interaction. Um, I won't tell you about all five of them, um, but um, just to give you a, a sense of, uh, of some of them, um, one of the, the chapters focuses on, um, on the island of Rota in the Commonwealth of the Northern Mariana Islands in the Pacific, um, which is a critically endangered island crow that's had huge declines over the last few decades. Um, and there are many reasons for its decline, but one of them is persecution by local um, indigenous Chamorro people. And so that chapter is really exploring the, um, that situation, the, the drive, um, the frustrations and the uh, concerns over land use and livelihood that have driven um, some of that persecution by local people. Um, and so it's about intersections of conservation, development, colonisation uh, and more. Um, and then another chapter sort of at the other end of the spectrum is looks at the, the common raven in the Mojave Desert in California. Um, and there it's a, a story about ravens uh, who are considered to be overabundant, um, eating endangered desert tortoises. Um, and again, the story of the decline of the tortoises is complicated and multifaceted, um, but the ravens are a part of it. And, and in particular, the, their capacity to peck through um, soft juvenile tortoise shells uh, and eat the tortoise out of them. So there have been lots of calls and, and some attempts to cull, kill the ravens en masse. Um, and that's proven to be both practically tricky because the birds are smart and wary. And if you, if, if you shoot one, its partner will often avoid you um, from then on. Um, but it's also raised lots of community opposition. So for various reasons, it hasn't been possible to lethally um, control uh, these birds. And so uh, I am talking to and thinking with some really interesting folks in that chapter who are trying to develop um, some non-lethal ways of um, managing or living with tortoises, uh, including exploding 3D printed tortoise shells that teach ravens, uh, tortoise, ravens not to eat tortoises. Um, so those are just two of the, the um, five case studies in the book. And um, I guess thinking about it as um, continuing on from flightways from my earlier book, um, that was all about extinction and birds. Um, this one focuses in on corvids um, in a way that I hoped would allow me to, to give a thicker, fuller sense of, um, of this way of life, uh, which even though it takes different forms in different places, there's something distinctively and interestingly called about all of those case studies. Um, but it also draws in, obviously, these questions of extermination alongside extinction. Um, and so I really wanted to think about um, the challenges of living not just with rare and threatened species, but with others that are being targeted in different ways. Um, and so I think that obviously opens up very different kinds of questions um, and very different kinds of challenges. And so by thinking about crows in all of these different sites, um, organism, organisms that are uh, in many ways very similar in terms of their cognitive and social lives, uh, in some places despised, in others loved, in some places conserved, in others killed, um, uh, was seeing what might be gained by, by trying to bring those stories uh, into proximity with one another. 
Um, so like all of my uh, work, this, this book is um, situated in the, the interdisciplinary environmental humanities, but trying to bring those humanities literatures into conversation with the natural sciences and with my own field work, um, mostly interviews and, and participant observation, and to tell stories um, that do um, my best to, to try and draw readers into a sense of appreciation and care and um, for, for these uh, beings, but also for the worlds, for the complex relationships um, that they're tangled up in, for better or worse. So to story as a mode of, um, of being drawn into complexity as well as into appreciation, I hope. Um, so I thought what I might do just for a few minutes to finish off is just say a little bit about the, what I think are two of the main sort of themes or, or um, that the book is working with. And one, the first one is multi-species ethics uh, and the second is uh, field philosophy. So I'll just try and say a little bit about each of them. Um, so multi-species ethics, I guess, is, is pretty obviously, again, as the name implies, grounded in, in this question of what it would mean to do ethics if we take seriously the fundamentally multi-species character of the world that we're involved in. Um, and so if we take seriously our entanglements with uh, multiple temporal and spatial scales uh, with other beings, living and dead, um, from post processes of species co-evolution uh, through to our individual uh, histories of consumption, interaction and more with others. We're obviously all um, fundamentally multi-species um, characters in a multi-species world. So what, what ought ethics to look like? Um, and I think that my um, starting point is just that it's what is needed is something very different to more conventional approaches to animal ethics um, and to environmental ethics, uh, which tend to be quite abstract, um, tend to be a, um, considerations about, you know, for example, the grounds on which animals might be said to have rights or intrinsic versus instrumental value. Uh, and so at best, they are worked out in an, in an armchair and then applied um, to the world, if at all. Um, and so instead, what I'm thinking about in this book is a more emergent ethics that, that, that emerges out of the complexity of, uh, of the field. Um, so part of that is, is trying to take seriously what we might crudely break down into three, three sets of competing um, ethical obligations to, to the welfare of individual animals, to species and environments, um, and also to, to human beings, to, uh, with all of their cultural and um, livelihood diversities and needs. So how can we do a kind of ethics that um, is accountable across all of those different levels rather than just um, sort of either focusing in on one or thinking that one of them perhaps trumps the other and sadly we have to sacrifice the welfare of animals in order to conserve the species but um, you know, it's, it's the greater good if you like. So what, what, can, what does ethics look like if we have no uh, escape routes like that? Um, and I think what it requires is a kind of relentless working through of complexity. It's a movement or a move away from a kind of one size fits all ethics uh, and to an effort to, um, to develop something that's a bit more um, situated. And I guess I'm, my, my thinking there is drawing on a whole lot of people. Um, ethnographers like Debbie Bird Rose, um, feminist STS scholars like 
Don Haraway and Isabel Stengers, as well as people like um, Derrida and Judith Butler um, and, and others who all in very different ways have resisted a kind of universalizing ethics to attend to the particular. Um, so um, I guess then I, the way I, I summed up what I'm thinking about is what does it look like to live and die well with these crows in this place and time? Um, and that's obviously about much more than the crows themselves. It's about the whole worlds of, of relationship, accountability that we're drawn into with them. Um, but my um, framing in the book is to think about ethics as, as a work of, of worlding well, uh, of crafting flourishing worlds with others, um, but in a way that um, refuses to sort of let that be a, an innocent definition. And so is a part, is, involved in an ongoing questioning of what counts as well as flourishing or indeed as, as crafting um, and so who is relevant and involved in determining these things are precisely what's at issue so it's an ethics without final answers an ongoing process of attending um, of learning to live differently and to see the world differently through a kind of multiplication of perspectives um, on what will count as a better world for whom uh, etc so as is probably clear to, to some of you, at least I'm thinking um, pretty heavily with Donna Haraway's work on situated knowledges, um, which is very much not about knowledges in any kind of isolated way, but about these ontological, epistemological, ethical um, entanglements. Um, so I guess the clearest picture of that developed in the book is um, in chapter one, where I'm, I'm thinking about uh, this as a, a situated pluralism. Excuse my dog uh, barking in the background. Um, so I'll just say a few quick words about field philosophy. Um, uh, and I guess it's, a, it's an effort, again, to describe um, what I do um, uh, methodologically. I'm trained as a philosopher, um, but never really fit in a philosophy department, um, never worked in a philosophy department. And so I've been uh, very interested in, in field work for a long time. Um, and in, in thinking beyond the kind of applied ethics to what I referred to a moment ago as emergent ethics. Um, so drawing on diverse knowledges from the sciences to indigenous insights and uh, engagements with other than human beings and, and thinking about what philosophy looks like um, if these beings are also philosophers, um, if we are philosophizing um, in the field with others taking others insights into the world seriously uh, and so that's a work that um, uh, is in conversation with a lot of great people but I should should mention Michelle Bastian and uh, Matt Trelew and Brett Buchanan who I think are doing great work on this um, field philosophy um, in that space um, so yeah as I mentioned at the outset the, the book's grounded in interviews and um, participant observation with a whole range of people, conservationists, uh, farmers, activists, hunters, uh, residents, lots of um, indigenous folks, um, and trying to draw out um, their insights and to draw those into conversation with um, philosophy and the humanities and with the natural sciences. Um, and I did that, do that in each chapter in a way that's grounded in a different keyword. And that was really just an, an effort to try and um, make the books a bit more focused. One of the, the dangers and difficulties of this kind of um, emergent philosophizing uh, is that it can just go off in all kinds of directions very easily. Um, so by 
situating each chapter, um, focusing it in on a particular keyword. Um, it was an effort to try and pull the focus the chapters, but also to stage a dialogue. And so the keywords are words that have interesting histories and literatures in both the humanities and biology. Um, so terms like community and inheritance um, are really obviously terms that, that come with their own literatures in both the natural sciences and the humanities, uh, and trying to bring those into conversation with each other. Um, but also, and this is where it becomes a, a three-way dialogue, um, into conversation with insights from the field. Um, and that just to give you one very quick example, um, uh, in the, the chapter on Hawaii and the Hawaiian crow, um, one of the, the people I talked to there was uh, a, a kapuna, um, an elder, Hanakialani Springer. And so she taught me to understand inheritance, which is what I'm thinking about in that chapter, uh, as a political project. Um, and she, she did that through her sense of herself as a citizen of the land. Um, that was her framing. And so that was her way of understanding what it means to inherit the ongoing legacies of colonization, um, but also the obligations of respect for Aina, for the land. Um, so she becomes in that chapter, if you like, one of the central um, um, philosophers, if we want to label everyone that way, or at least um, uh, conceptual allies to, to think through what it means um, to do inheritance well. So field philosophy, I hope it's clear, is, is a sort of a methodology, but also a set of, of ethical commitments. Uh, it's, a, of, it's about epistemological possibilities. Um, it's a kind of world-making work. And uh, so that's the approach I try to take uh, in the book. Um, and maybe I'll leave it there. Thanks. Thank you so much, Tom. That was a great introduction uh, to this book. And um, you know, one of the things that I was thinking about is how this week there was a, an article that had come out about the uh, ravens at the Tower of London um, and that the ravens um, were, yeah, going out of the tower, um, flying out because they uh, were not getting enough visitors um and that they were used to having the visitors and getting attention and potentially being fed um so i was wondering um how one thinks about the relationships um with these crows from the crow's perspective so what the crow or the raven gets out of the relationship um and how we ascribe or don't ascribe um the agency to them in that relationship. Um, yeah, great, thanks. Um, I hadn't heard this story about the Tower of London Ravens. That does not surprise me though, um, but, but very interesting. Um, so I, I think that's one of the most exciting things that's going on in multi-species studies is to try and answer that question well, but also differently and in a whole and in, in many varied ways. And so this people doing all sorts of interesting things from interviewing plants to um, really interesting art practices. Um, uh, um, Ellen, um, who's here, um, is doing great work on at the intersection between um, drawing on participatory theory, thinking about how we can um, draw on some of those insights to think with pigs and, and others about um, their agency and their needs. 
Um, I guess my, my approach is, uh, I've described it in the past as being sort of more, more traditional or less experimental and um, I don't know if that's the best way to, to describe it, if it's just, just fuddy-duddy or whatever it is, but uh, I really am, am pretty um, happy with working uh, ethnographically with, with different people who have different knowledges about corvids in this case, so that includes hunters and farmers and um, indigenous peoples who have, have their own knowledges about what crows are doing and why they're doing it, uh, but also to work really closely with scientists um, and especially in this case with the behavioral biologists doing work on cognition and sociality. And so I've, especially obviously when I'm working with endangered crows and ravens, there's a lot of those studies just haven't been done. Uh, with that particular species, but we're able to make careful extrapolations across within the genus um, about why they might be doing you know, similar looking things for similar reasons, say. So for me, those are the main resources that I like to draw on. And partly it's just, um, yeah, they're the ones that, um, that speak to me. Um, but it, it is a, it's a difficult job, I think, of, of giving a good account um, of saying what we can in a way that is um, grounded, but yet often it has to be speculative, um, but that is tries to invite others into what might be going on here and but not in a kind of wild flights of fancy might be going on here way, but, but more in a kind of, in a grounded, careful sense of what we can reasonably say. Uh, and that to me is just much more interesting. Um, not to say that others are involved in wild flights of fancy, I'm just saying it's a, it's a careful work uh, that everybody is doing differently and in different ways, more or less creative and innovative. And, um, but those have been my main resources and they continue to be. Great. Eva, you have a question. Eva. Hi, can you hear me? Okay. No? Yeah? Okay. <laughs> um, hi. hi. Um, um, I've really been enjoying the book a lot, um, but I had a question about methodology in relation to um, what you were talking about just then, thinking about how different knowledges come together. So I think I found it really helpful, I suppose, methodological approach, not just using, say, scientific studies to kind of undergird, undergird the I suppose the discussion in the field, but sort of thinking across that terminology. And I just wondered, obviously one of the things you've been talking about are the kind of affinities and the ways different knowledges kind of help each other in, in, in that, it, I suppose with the ethological studies in particular, how you were thinking about what was happening with the crows. I just wondered, how do we navigate if we're trying to bring these different knowledges together, the tensions as well? And I was thinking about it in terms of what happens when different knowledges clash, how to bring those issues to the fore. And also maybe kind of ethical tensions that emerge. So I got totally obsessed with trying to find information out about lab ravens after reading the book and kind of what happens to lab ravens and what the politics is and found it's quite heterogeneous but yes yeah, so I was interested in the ethical and epistemological tensions about doing that type of interdisciplinary work I suppose. Thanks um, yeah great great questions um, I think there's, there's there's a lot of different ways of working with um, 
conflicting knowledges about what animals do and why they do it or, or, or plants or other things. Um, I think it's, it's difficult and a lot, of the, a lot of the time I think it comes down to what the stakes are of the difference. Um, if the stakes are low, um, then I think in many ways um, it doesn't matter and we can, we can live well in a kind of pluralist world. Um, it's, for me, it's really challenging when the stakes are really high and when, um, when a different way of, of understanding what a particular creature is up to leads to the need to cull it or the need... I keep using the word cull. I've been talking to biologists too much and I slip into bad language. The need to kill them en masse um, is... Um, or the need to you know, impact on people's livelihoods in really consequential ways. Um, then I think it really matters um, the differences. Uh, and I don't have a good answer. There's a nice paper by Mario Blasso from a few years ago that I would point people to, and he can do some of my work for me, um, on caribou, uh, doing and undoing caribou. Um, and, um, and he's there trying to work through a consequential site where there's very different knowledges about, um, about what caribou are up to. Um, I think, I mean, the I'm trying to think of examples from my work in, in the work I've recently been doing, which is on snails, not on, on the rodents. Um, there's a, a really interesting traditional Hawaiian um, notion that the snails sing in the forest at night um, and, and the biologists, well, biologists have different things to say about that, but one of the things they'll say is that snails don't have vocal cords. Um, and so in that case, I mean, I wouldn't call that low stakes in a way it's, um, you know, it's all about people's culture. It's high stakes in many ways, but it's, um, uh, I think we can live with that um, uncertainty, with that mystery, with different ways of, um, of being. And in fact, that's one of, sorry for those who have heard me speak about snails before, but one of the, the nice ways in which I've been thinking about that is drawing on, um, how to, uh, sorry, um, drawing on, um, oh, I've forgotten her name. Um, I've forgotten her name, sorry. A, a very famous Hawaiian hula practitioner um, whose response to this situation was just to say, um, oh, well, the, the snails won't sing for the scientists. Um, so I think that there's, there is, um, in many people's worldviews, um, there is space for kind of pluralistic difference. Um, the world reveals itself differently to different people. Um, and I think that's what people like Mario Blasa and um, Marisol de la Cadena in their, their world of many worlds um, are, are trying to explore. So I don't have any particularly good examples um, or good um, general rules. I think that when it really matters, um, for a lot of the time for me it comes down to where, uh, where I want to cast my lot um, to, to borrow from Haraway. Um, what I think is which I think are the worlds we ought to be going towards. Um, and then if that means sometimes I, don't, I can't make room for somebody else's understanding of how the world works, then I think um, that's what we have to do. And that's actually the kind of core, core of the question I'm asking in, in that chapter on situated pluralism. But since you've read that already, obviously I didn't answer it adequately. Um, but it's an, an effort to, to try and... Um, be as open as we can be in a kind of pluralist sense to that diversity, but to accept that, that unlimited openness is not a realistic way of living in the world. Um, and your other question is something I, I'm sorry to say I haven't really um, looked into, um, the, where these ravens end up. Um, 
something I should have looked into. They're quite long-lived birds, so they're probably, and there's only, in the, at least in the main um, two places that I was visiting, there's, there's not an awful lot of them there, um, only a handful. So I'm not sure how often they even, um, you know, leave and come in. Um, yeah, I would like to know where they go because they could well cause a lot of trouble if they were released. I suspect they would not be released. Good question. Um, sorry. I'd love to hear what you've um, learned about this. And maybe we can talk about that later. Okay. Great. I think that it's really interesting to, to think about knowledges and, and not only that there's difference in knowledges, but where they come from, right? And that that's a natural scientist's knowledge is also a situated and constructed knowledge. Um, it's not uh, some, uh, yeah, uh, knowledge that's somehow above other knowledges. And I think the, the singing snails example is, is one of those. Um, it could just be that they're thinking of singing differently uh, than what, what the uh, indigenous people understand the word singing to mean. Uh, so, uh, Olga, you had a question. We'll ask you to unmute now, yes. My... Yes. Uh, hi. Um, thank you so much. Uh, I don't know if you can hear me. I'm sorry. Thanks so much. It was really, okay, great. It was really interesting. Um, I have a question about how this relates to your previous work. <clears throat> uh, the book Flightways, where you were talking about like life forms uh, that kind of share these uh, same sort of relationships that are intergenerational products. And I'm wondering how you conceptualize the difference between these kinds of different forms. Um, so for example, you talked about how in this book you're going over five different sites. And I'm wondering if each of those uh, populations of crows is, is like a different form in itself or uh, do they share relationships across uh, those sites? If you could talk about that, that would be interesting. Yeah, great, thank you. Um, I should just say, sorry, that the hula, um, Kuma Hula, teacher of Hula, whose name I forgot is Edith Kanakaole, for anyone who wanted to, to look her up. Um, thanks very much for that question. Um, I, I think that's one of the things I found most interesting about this project is, is that um, playing with that sameness and difference of, of the crows, um, but in many ways there are shared, there's sharedness. So they're, so they're all distinct species that I'm looking at. Um, uh, they're, but they're all of the same genus, Corvus. Um, and some of them are, are birds that live in, the, in the, the forest and are forest and fruit specialists. And are, most of the more specialist crows are island birds that are now in, often endangered, um, it, which who contrast very strongly in many ways to the urban scavenging um, or even rural scavenging crows that, that uh, are much less specialised, uh, generalists, adaptive, uh, and have done really well out of human human disturbed environments. Um, so it's both of the fact that they are um, they are so different in their situations um, and in their relationships with people, and yet so similar uh, as far as we know in terms of their cognitive and, and social lives. Um, there are differences. Um, some of them hang out more in, in larger groups. Some of them are more. Uh, smaller groups, some of them have been shown to use tools in really interesting ways, like the New Caledonian crow and the Hawaiian crow. Uh, others haven't, but we don't know, you know what they might be 
capable of or up to when we're not looking or um and so um it, it's for me it was it, it's interesting to think what we can move between those sites in terms of our knowledge and our understanding of corvids and how that might draw out other things so one of the most and this is a spoiler for the last chapter i'm sorry uh, one of the most interesting um, sites in which I was trying to do that uh, was with the Mariana crow. Um, and again, it was prompted by a fantastic observation from um, an indigenous uh, man, a Chamorro man, who told me about the crow's provisioning. He called it provisioning, but hiding away, caching, the biologists would call it, um, their almonds to come back and eat later. Um, and there's, there's been no work of that. There's been actually no observations of that behaviour by by biologists in the Mariana Islands. Uh, and yet we know from all over the world that corvids do cache. Um, and in fact, there's some really interesting work um, going on at Cambridge, exploring what we can then, what we can learn about crows by studying their caching behavior, or, or all sorts of corvids actually. Um, and one of the really fascinating things we learn is that they have a sense of the future, um, that they're making plans about what they cache um, about, based on when they're gonna be able to come back and access it and, and what they think they'll want in the future and so on. Um, so they're making decisions about the future. Um, and so in that chapter, which is all about hope and the future, um, being able to think across that interesting work in, in Cambridge and, and doing that carefully and talking to biologists about how reasonable it is for to understand the caching behaviour of the Mariana crow in the same sort of way that we understand this other caching behaviour of other, um, other corvids, um, I think opens up a new possibilities for understanding what's going on in the Mariana Islands in this, with this particular behaviour. And if you follow me in the book, I try to, to draw that into a broader philosophical point about hopeful practices that, that other species might be engaged in. So I hope that answers the question. All um, right. So, 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 yeah, I'll leave. <laughs> <laughs> Libby, you have a question. Let's see. Yes. Go ahead, Libby. Mm, no, now we don't hear you. You're on, you're unmuted, but no. I. No, no, no. Okay, well, technical technical problem. If you could write your question in the in the chat, um, then I will ask it for you. Uh, Libby says hi, of course. Um, so, uh, and while we're waiting for that question from Libby, I actually have a, a question in the chat um, from Mehdi. Um, so, do do you in the book account for observations that would resemble collective rituals? So something that we might, if we were looking at a human population or human populations of the past, uh, say, oh, that's a ritual. And how did such rituals, you know, affect or situate your field's philosophy? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, no, I can't, my memory is not excellent, but I can't think of anything in the book that I would, would characterize in those terms. In, in Flightways, there's a short discussion of crow funerals. Um, which you might um, want, to, want to think about as a kind of ritual form. Um, um, but I think that's, I don't think there is anything like that in this book. Um, and I'm trying to think, so, um, 
And I'm not, and I'm not always sure, although I did study religious studies as an undergraduate a long time ago, uh, I'm not always sure how helpful um, terminology like ritual is uh, in applied to animal lives. I think it, well, it may well be very helpful. And, and one of the things to go off on a little bit of a tangent that I'm interested in this book is, is how we can stretch and play with and experiment with terms like hope or um, to, to think about how animals might be doing their own kinds of hopeful practice um, that's quite different to what humans are up to, but uh, is sort of in the neighborhood. Um, and so there might be a, a meaningful reason um, to carefully uh, play with those terms and see what comes of that. And so ritual may well be one of those terms, it's just not one that I have done that work with. And so it's not one I would jump into applying to, um, to the sites that I'm looking at. Um, so I'm not sure how it would affect um, that field philosophical work. I think it would, um, if, if I wanted to, to really dwell with um, a, a, an animal ritual of some kind, I'd really want to think about what, um, what that term means, its histories, uh, but also how biologists have tended to think about these kinds of animal associations um, and, and to try and bring those approaches into conversation with one another because there are real um, dangers too of those kinds of conversations and the obvious one with with ritual I guess is the, the tendency to to bring um, anthropological discussions perhaps discussions that were unashamedly framed around primitive behaviors into conversation with what animals are doing and to try and draw connections between animals and certain kinds of people so obviously not that I'm suggesting this is what you're doing, but there are obviously dangers in, um, in the ways in which we, the terminology we choose and the way we stage those conversations. So um, I wouldn't use that terminology lightly, but that doesn't mean it couldn't be very productive. So that's a, a half answer. Great. And now um, Libby has asked her question. She's, she started to thank you, Tom, for your beautiful book. Um, she's attracted to um, the Typhoon Alley, uh, which you mentioned on page 217, both because it describes Rota, a specific, a precise and specific place, but also our planetary predicament in climate change. So she was wondering if you could say a bit for us on the philosophies of scale and place that crows can do for us that we can't do as mere humans. So thinking of philosophies of scale and of place with crows. Thanks, Thanks Libby. I love to riff. Um, um, well, let me see. Um, I guess there's different ways in which I mean, the, the book sort of surprised me in a way in that time kept coming back as, as central to a lot of the concepts that I was working with. And I hadn't sort of realised that. Um, how, I mean, obviously, time is obviously connected to inheritance in, in really obvious ways, but it's also connected to hope, again, in kind of obvious ways. Um, and it kept popping up in other chapters too. And so I, I, I was interested in what um, different kinds of scales of, of time and place we can think with crows, but I, I don't know that it was so much about how something distinctively corvid, although in, in some work, not so much in this book, I'm, I'm thinking more with evolutionary biology or with biogeography. Or, um, and I think different species uh, have opened up those questions about biogeography and evolution in really different ways. There's some other work on snails I'm doing at the moment. I think they're some of the most fascinating 
creatures for opening up those questions because they move around in really particular ways over long periods of time. But um, so, so I think the different species do open up those, those questions of scale in different ways, but it isn't something that I think I'm really taking up in the book. The, the most um, obvious connection um, to my mind is to what I think is chapter three, the chapter on um, Hook Van Holland uh, and, um, and the port of Rotterdam and thinking about that place um, as an engine of the Anthropocene. Um, and so I'm, I'm there, I think, thinking most about, about scale, about the planetary and, and the local, but about the need to disrupt those kinds of scalar uh, logics, um, but also about um, different kinds of temporal um, durations and um, levels of zoom, if you like. Um, so that's what I'm doing in that chapter, but it's not, I think, uniquely about the crow. It's about how the response to the crow um, which is to try and kill this group of crows that, that most likely came in, or their ancestors most likely came in on container ships uh, into the port of Rotterdam. Um, but it's the way in which they're positioned as a threat. Um, and so the way that the, the different responses to the crows draws on different kinds of temporal and scalar logics, and then how that differs so dramatically to the, the response that's made to the port of Rotterdam, which I think by any definition is a much more significant environmental threat than, um, than these crows, and yet that's not um, how that situation gets resolved. Um, so those are the, the the kind of there is a lot of scalar work going on in it, but but I, it's not distinctively crow. I don't think it's just the, the sites that I happen to get pulled into by these particular crows. And Typhoon Alley, I had not thought about thinking about that as a uh, a kind of sense of our of our contemporary predicament or a label for that. Um, it's really worrying. Um, you know, obviously, the typhoon is a particular form, and I still don't have my head wrapped around where these things change their names from typhoons to hurricanes to cyclones. Um, so it's particular in, in lots of ways. Um, but um, yeah, I guess it, like all of these Anthropocene type logics, um, yeah, we're, we might all be in Typhoon Alley, but some people are, are, are in Typhoon Alley as well, um, if that makes sense. Uh, they're, they're in there on a planetary level and also uh, you know, in, in their very particular uh, island home. Um, so, yeah, maybe many Typhoon Alleys, not sure. Great, yeah, and, and her comments about um, then, you know, thinking about Rotterdam as a as a big logistical center and a source not only then of, of Corvids, but of COVID, um, right? And how <laughs> those move around uh, through precisely this kind of, of movement um, of, of your crows, but with people. Um, so, Bernardo, you had a question. Yeah, I wanted to ask about uh, what storytelling and communication uh, also, because I think it's, uh, it's pretty well established. Okay, animals are good for thinking with and thinking through. Uh, but animals are also vessels for, as, for storytelling. So how have you found crows as, in a way, a medium for telling stories about what we do in environmental humanities? So making uh, often quite abstract uh, debates from environmental humanities and philosophy into something that can reach audiences and have you noticed any difference with your new product on snails? I'm thinking about, in a way, the particular charisma of animals. 
it could just be personal. I think crows are more charismatic than snails, but it could be a lot of ways of seeing it. I think that's a widely held view. Um, yeah, th thanks, Finana. Um, the um, that I think is, is one of the was one of the reasons I moved to snails after having written about vultures and then about a whole lot of birds and then about crows um, was to see what different kinds of stories might um, might be told, but also might in some way be elicited or um, by um, by these very different kinds of creatures. Um, and partly that is, as you as you say, it's about um, the the charisma and just the level of interest um, that each of these species opens up, how readily they grab people uh, and draw them in, um, which is not just to do with the readership, it's also to do with whether or not people even notice that they're in the environment with them and, uh, and so what kinds of stories and relationships um, and, and difficulties emerge out of that. Um, but it's also about their very different um, ways of life and so the, for the snails, especially, um, they're, they're just, um, it's like chalk and cheese in a way to go from what are probably according to, you know, at least the way that behavioral biologists think about intelligence, um, corvids being one of the most intelligent um, animals on the planet through to um, an invertebrate um, or not, not any old invertebrate, octopus are doing very well, um, but a, a snail um, that is, uh, not intelligent, let's say, by most of those kinds of measures of intelligence. And yet, again, the more I, I dove into what the snails are doing, um, there's, there's lots of fascinating behaviours going on with you know, following one another's slime trails and um, learning about new food sources and getting up to all sorts of things. So they're not as different as I thought they were, and, but they do um, open up very different kinds of questions um, as a result of um, yeah, their, their charisma, their um, ecological roles, if you like, their, their cognitive and emotional lives. Um, there's different kinds of stories to be told with each of them. Um, but I, yeah, I don't think I was thinking about that as, as consciously in this book, having been thinking of, in the Crow book, having been thinking about birds for so long, uh, I was sort of taking them for granted. Um, and what fascinated me most was all of the really interesting things that Corvids are up to. Um, and it wasn't until I turned to the snails that I realised how um, particular that was. Uh, I mean, I, I guess I knew, but uh, when you actually go to, to do the research and start writing and you realise you're pulled in very different directions um, and pulled, I mean, for example, and I keep talking about snails, I'm sorry, but um, pulled in that case into a really interesting, um, into the really interesting world of taxonomy and realising how, how much of snail conservation um, depends on knowing which species we're talking about in a, in a world in which that's very far from set uh, and is you know, constantly evolving um, as the understandings change and as genetic techniques change and so on. Whereas with a lot of the birds and mammals, it's, you know, we, we sort of take our species categories relatively for granted. Um, every now and again, there's an upset, but um, for the most part, we think we know who we're talking about. Uh, but that's not the case with a lot of invertebrates. So, so that is obviously a story that I just couldn't tell with with crows or probably most birds, um, but that is in some way invited or demanded by thinking with snails. Um, so I think that's yeah part of a it's a good reason for having a bit of taxonomic variability in one's multi-species work. I think we're, we're drawn in different ways. 
Well, thank you very much. It was absolutely fascinating to hear about this book and, and to think about crows, um, all the corvids um, that are out there and, and we have them uh, here around our house. And, you know, they're fascinating to watch and to think with um, and to think about the ways in which they also, um, yeah, can be flexible and we can be flexible, um, we hope, uh, in, in dealing with... Um, our lives and challenges and squirrel away as Libby points out is also to cash to squirrel away so we think with animals all the time uh, in our in our own uh, uh, yeah linguistic um, turns of phrases uh, that we use so uh, thank you very much to uh, Tom Van Doren for uh, talking to us about his book um, wake of crows and that's with uh, columbia university press so we hope that you'll all of you will enjoy reading it thank you tom thanks very much thanks guys thanks everyone for coming <laughs>